Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks and I'm joined by the Manuel Neuer to my Freddie Woodman. It's Justin Peach. Good day to you, Ryan. How's it going, Justin? It's really good. I'm I'm very sort of I mean you get I get a little bit giddy with the playoffs. I don't mm. know why. I I feel a bit robbed that they were both on the same night, but I had a full evening of playoff football, so I can't complain. It was fantastic. It's like our Christmas, really, isn't it? It's what we're gearing up to all year. And when it's actually here, we just can't contain any excitement. I was losing sleep on Sunday (laughs) night in preparation for the two biggest games of the year before the next two biggest games of the year and ultimately the biggest game of the year. But it was... Just fantastic. We'll we'll get onto that in just a sec, Justin, because you are, of course, listening to the biggest championship-specific podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. Of course, we're going to talk about the two first legs of the championship playoffs, both very intriguing first legs. I think that's fair to say. And then the second half of the show is going to be dedicated to news in the championship from the past week, because there has been a lot (laughs) of news, mainly involving Derby County. So we'll get onto that in just a sec. But let's talk about the two first legs, Justin. As I say, two very intriguing first legs. They were like tactical games of chess, both of them, but both with very different tempos. We'll start off with the earlier game. And Ornott Dan Jumagol gave Bournemouth a 1-0 win against Brentford. I thought Bournemouth were good value for their win. They they absolutely were. I thought they were. They they set nice little traps for for Brentford, and they were happy to just sit on the counter attack. And they've got the players to do it, so why not? Um, and I don't think Brentford were particularly great in the game. Bournemouth was certainly the better side. Um, but yeah, I think Bournemouth will be a lot happier going into second leg. But as we spoke about in the preview, Brentford are a lot better when they're chasing. So we might see a completely different Brentford team. Actually, no, I wouldn't be surprised to see a completely different Brentford. Um, team to the, the one that played against Bournemouth yesterday. Yeah, well, we'll get on to the second leg in just a sec. I think this first leg was a very interesting one. It was much slower than the second first leg that we saw, wasn't it? The main takeaway I got it from a Brentford perspective was how wasteful they were in possession. I lost count of the number of times they passed the ball out of play. Norgard tried to knock it over to Rasmussen and it going flying over his head. Seemed to have happened at least five times in the first half alone. Um, And then when they were going forwards, everything they did just instantly got recycled by Bournemouth, who quite frankly seemed to have Marcus Force and Ivan Toney in their back pockets for the vast majority of the game. And Brentford just didn't really have an answer for how solid Bournemouth were at the back. You're, you're absolutely spot on. And I think Brentford, they, they struggled to get the creative players in the game. Sergei Canos did more defensive work than he did in the final third, which is not where you want Sergei Canos to be. He did, he did a, a, fair, a fair job in that role, but you want him to be getting at fullbacks, cutting inside, putting balls in or having shots. And he didn't really do that. And we talk about Ivan Tony barely involved. I know he got a knock early on in the game, but he was—he really was barely involved. I honestly, until the second half, didn't realise Marcus Force was playing. I thought it was a three-four-three. It was a three-four-three, but I, I, for some reason, I did not include Force into my thinking. Just completely yeah. passed me by. He, he managed to complete six passes in that game, which surprised me because I don't recall him touching the ball in the hour that he was mm. on the pitch. Yeah, exactly, and that—that that tells you exactly 
where Brentford were in terms of how they were attacking. It was just it didn't exist really. Um, they had a couple of chances, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. Um, that miss is what I'm referring to. But yeah, overall they were very cautious, quite disappointing, and um, it sort of mirrored the the first leg last season against Swansea, which Thomas Frank alluded to in his post match presser. Yeah, Rasmussen had a nightmare at right back. Dan Juma and Brooks were. <clears throat> giving him a right old torrid time and I imagine he'll be having nightmares over how he was playing for the next couple of nights. Norgaard's passing was terrible. There were just a lot of bad performances out there and we were speaking to Billy, weren't we, about um, how, how who are they going to be the key players for Brentford in this game and Matthias Jensen was one of them and he said if Jensen has a good game then Brentford are going to do very well. If he doesn't have a good game then Brentford aren't going to do very well. And he didn't have a good game, and Brentford didn't do very well. He was summed up perfectly with it. I think it was a corner um, in the second half where he literally just kicked it straight into the side netting. <laughs> it was it was bad, and he yeah he had a really bad game and really really poor. And he he committed a lot of stupid fouls. I think Brentford committed a lot of stupid fouls as well. It just seemed like they weren't quite on it all all over the pitch, both in possession, going forwards, and just discipline overall. Yeah, you're spot on. And as you say, the key moment for Brentford was Brian and Boomer's miss. Now the ball has flashed across goal. He's gone sliding in and he did manage to get something on it, didn't he? But he somehow managed to put it wide and it, it just blew my mind how he missed. But I, I, I've got to say, it wouldn't have been a deserved equaliser, but it would have made a massive difference, wouldn't it? Oh, well, absolutely. It gets them back into the game in the first leg. But yeah, I, I sort of, I feel bad for him because it was quite a like a fierce pass across the box it wasn't a a, a little dink straight straight into his path it was a bit of a, a not a not a laces through it but sort of a daisy cutter lace through it a lot of pace on the ball and Bremo had to leave his composure behind him just to get something on it and he got something on it just wasn't in the direction of the goal he had to change his stride in his run-up so I do feel for him a bit I don't think he deserves all the all the uh, slack well, let's not take anything away from Bournemouth, who I thought were clearly the better side out of these two teams. I thought David Brooks, Justin, was absolutely fantastic. I think that has got to be the best game he's had this season. Without doubt, without doubt. And big players show up in big games and, and, he, and he did that. Same with Dan Juma, same with Lerma. I thought Lerma and Pearson were really good marshalling the, the, the midfield. They, they, they did a superb job of, of breaking it up and... I know it's a cliche, but the midfield battle was won by Bournemouth and that's why they're ahead. They were a lot better than the likes of Jensen and Fosu, uh, etc. And the players that were and Yano. And um, as well as that, Bournemouth had, I alluded to it with Brentford, Bournemouth had discipline in their game. They, 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 they managed the occasion a lot better than Brentford did. I know there's another leg to go, but they have a lot of experienced players. I mentioned Lerma in our preview about him playing in a World Cup for Colombia. They've got big game experience in this team and we spoke about David Brooks just then. This is quality and experience in the team and it's 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 hard to see Bournemouth letting that go in the second leg. Well, it'll be interesting to see, won't it? Just before we move on to the second leg and have a look ahead towards that. As I say, David Brooks was fantastic. The counter-attack, Justin. What a slick counter-attack that was. It was poetry in motion really David Brooks's pass to Dan Juma was just spot on and then the finish is exactly how you expect Dan Juma to finish but he was great as well so many players so many big game players really staying, standing up and making themselves countered in this game and 
I think you've also got to take your hat off to Jonathan Mudgate, who did a good job tactically at just silencing Brentford's attack whenever they did try to get forward. When both strikers on the pitch can't get into the game, I think you have got to look at the manager and give him a round of applause for managing to make that the case. Let's look at the second leg, Justin. I think one source for optimism, which Thomas Frank was very keen to push after the game, was that Brentford lost in the first leg to Swansea last season and came back to win. And they're going to have to do it again now. Definitely. Well, they have to. They have to go in with the same approach that they did with the, the Swansea game, where they literally just blew Swansea out of the war in the first 10, 15 minutes. It was it was an absolute show of uh, intent. Um, and Frank needs to do that. But the difference is that Bournemouth have so much quality in their team compared to Swansea last year. And it's no disrespect to Swansea, but Bournemouth had the likes of David Brooks, Lerma, Danjuma, Solanke, just big, big players. Um, so it's going to be a much more difficult task. But that team that finished in the game yesterday um, will probably be the team or, or as close to the team that starts in the in the second leg. Rico Henry at left wing back, Dalsgaard back in it, back in it right back. It, it, that has to happen. They have a lot more balance, a lot more experience when they do that. And as well as that, they've got to keep their heads. You know, the, the counter attack we mentioned with Bournemouth, Pontus Janssen's at right wing. They're against they're they're against the run of play in the game. He's the captain. Why why is he at right wing? He's a centre half, and and he's and he's lost the ball. And then Janops dived in uh, on Danjuma, and Danjuma is easily to pass easily able to pass it pass it by. So they have to keep their, keep their simply have to keep their heads, their discipline, and. Um, who knows, they might get the result. Well, as Simeon was saying, Brentford seem to do a lot better when they're chasing the game. They're doing that once again here. And I do agree with you. I think they will have pretty much the same team that we saw at the end of this game. I think Henry will almost certainly start. Uh, Canos didn't do too bad at left wing back, but I think you'd 100% choose Rico Henry every single time over him, wouldn't you? It's going to be interesting to see who plays at right back because I don't think Rasmussen had a good game. Uh, Dow's guards is a much more experienced head and you need those experienced heads in big game occasions like this. Brentford have just got to play a lot better than they did here. And that's easier said than done, of course, when you're coming up against a Bournemouth side with so much quality in there. But Bournemouth can be got at defensively. It's just a matter of actually getting at them defensively. Justin, let's go on to the other game, which was Swansea v Barnsley. Swansea are taking a one-goal advantage back to the Liberty Stadium after an Andre Ayew strike was enough to beat Barnsley. An interesting game, but I thought it was also a very entertaining game. I really enjoyed this game. I think the atmosphere played into it a lot because I think if there's no fans there, it becomes a, a difficult watch, especially with how often the, the ball was back and forth. Um, but yeah, you know, credit to, to Barnsley fans for making that atmosphere a playoff atmosphere. It was it was, it was brilliant. Um, but yeah, it was it was a great game, and it was it was two teams. Swansea, we know, quite conservative. They're happy to to sit back, and, and Barnsley, again, as we know, happy to play the ball in in Swansea's half, and and they did that, and it really was. Um, an intriguing game. You look at the the, the Swansea defence silencing Daryl DK uh, in the first half. I thought tactically they set up really well. Quite brave going forward at the back. Very brave dropping, arguably the best right back in the league. And Connor Roberts, maybe Mike Sarans is also up there in contention. But it, it was it was a brave choice and it paid off. Yeah. Well, first half Swansea barely got into the Barnsley half until the AU goal. But that's not to say Swansea weren't playing very well. I know that's weird to, th weird to say, but 
I thought they were just defending so well and just biding their time, waiting for that one chance, which ultimately came when AU got the goal. Kabango and Gurhi may still very well have DK and Woodrow in their pockets right now because they did not have a sniff of the ball all night, pretty much. And then Swansea were much better in the second half. Over the course of the 90 minutes, I thought they deserved the win. And we were taking our hats off for Jonathan Woodgate just a second ago. I think we've got to take off multiple hats to Steve Cooper because I thought this was a Steve Cooper masterclass in the way that everything Barnsley threw at them, they just absorbed. Barnsley just did not have anything to answer to whenever the ball got put into, you know, the Swansea areas because they Mm -hmm. just managed to create these traps and just take everything into their stride and ultimately recycle possession and then just go again. And then Barnsley just kept trying to do the same thing over and over again. It just didn't work. And we said Steve Cooper would be, well, Swansea as a whole would be the side that Barnsley wouldn't want to face because they're so solid defensively. And it ultimately showed here, really, didn't it? Well, exactly. Swansea are a team that like to play a little bit deeper, or, or they can play a bit deeper. They can play a high line. They're very fluid in, in how they set up. Um, they, they, they've they gone from a, a possession attacking based team to a possession conservative based team, which is, is very Dutch, isn't it? And it's, 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 it's working for them and it's working under Steve Cooper. And that's why the criticism towards him, I think, was was unfair. But he's shown how how good a tactician he is. I said in the preview that this is tournament football. Steve Cooper's got experience of, of, of big tournaments at, at England youth level. He's going to set his teams up individually in these games, and I think that suits better rather than having a set style of play like Barnsley do. Which is why we said Barnsley, as we, as 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 we all mentioned, Barnsley might struggle against Swansea compared to Brentford and, and Bournemouth. Um, so yeah, I think. The way the team set up, I thought Woodman, Cabango, Gehe, Grimes were all magnificent in that sort of triangle of um, Barnsley doom, really. They just they couldn't get in and around it. I'm trying to think of a, a better phrase to say it, but that triangle, the Swansea-Bermuda triangle, because everything that went in there was just was just swallowed up by Swansea and back up the pitch. It was it, it was brilliant. It's it more the... Diamond, Bermuda Diamond, as a oh yeah, it's to, just full size. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the Swansea, the Swansea Diamonds. There you go. Um, but you mentioned Freddie Woodman there. I thought Freddie Woodman was absolutely class, and it wasn't necessarily in terms of shot stopping, which I can't remember I have ever said about a goalkeeper before. I can only recall him really making one big save, but a goalkeeper being man of the match and only having one big save to make. Doesn't happen very often, but his commanding of his area and coming out coming out of his box to sweep up was it was just fantastic. And it's not he's not necessarily a goalkeeper who's had to do that as much as other goalkeepers in the championship this season, but he did it so well. And for the whole of the second half, the number of times he had to come off his line and sweep up to just eliminate any threat of a Barnsley tag just seemed to happen over and over again. But Barnsley just didn't seem to have an answer for it. Again, this kind of goes back to what we were just saying about Steve Cooper. I think he kind of knew that was going to happen. But Freddie Woodman was more than up to the task and possibly his best game of the season. Oh, without doubt, he was he was brilliant, and um, yeah, it's, it's very rare that we would just lay so much praise on on goalkeepers. But this performance really was 
fantastic. Um, and as you say, he, he made one mistake where it was when when he parried the Carlton Morris shot into the path of Callum Britton, but he but he made up for it with the save from Callum Britton, um, which is what goalkeepers are. They, that's what that's what they're there for. But his yeah, as you say, his commanding of the box at set pieces. I don't know if anyone noticed, but the amount of players they had round the the goal at set pieces. Um, but he but he still came out and swept it crosses. I thought he was he was there, and obviously the the coming out of his box and, and playing high up the pitch to to sweep up. Arguably won in the game because Barnsley rely on spacing behind defenders a lot. Darrell DK is very good at getting in behind. Didn't have a sniff, and that's because of Freddie Woodman playing very high up his pitch. You have to play brave against Barnsley, and Swansea did that, and they got the three, the three points. They got the win. Yeah, I know what you mean. But <laughs> it was very much because Freddie Budman is still very much a young goalkeeper, even though he is 24, that he's still quite young in goalkeeper terms. <clears throat> and this was the kind of performance you'd expect to see from, in terms of commanding his box, he was like watching, you know, a 35 year old experienced veteran. But he, he was just sensational, he really was. Um, but things just didn't really click in the final third for Barnsley, did they? They had a couple of good chances. That Callum Britton chance in particular was the massive chance, wasn't it? But things just didn't work. DK and Woodrow, as we mentioned, didn't get into the game. Carlton Morris was quite good when he came on, but uh, they didn't really have much of a threat. Of course, losing 1-0 at home is never ideal, is it, in the playoffs? It's a big ask for Barnsley now to try and get something in the return leg, isn't it? It is, and I'm not sure if they can change it up and as I say, you have, you have to out tactics, Swansea. Um, but Barnsley have one way of playing at the moment, um, and that's not a criticism for Barnsley because they do it well. And also, Valerian Ishmael's only been there for eight or nine months; he's not had a lot of time to work things out. And I think the other the other factor into this is is set pieces. And we mentioned that they they crowded players around the goal quite a lot, but I actually thought their set pieces were really poor. I thought they lived. Delivery was really poor throughout the game. I think they had one chance, which is Carlton Morris. It was a it was a low cross from the corner, and he and he flicked it up and he hit the bar. That was it, really, from from set pieces. And it, and it is an area they thrive in. They've scored the joint second most goals um, in the league this season, but they 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 they, they struggle to offer a, a, an answer really for for Swansea. And yeah, as you say, it's a big ask going into the second leg, one 0 down, especially against Swansea, who. What they showed against Barnsley is they are one of the best defensive teams in the league, ignoring the last six games of the season. That's what they can do. Barnsley have to do something different, I think, to, to, to get the win in the second leg. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, because Barnsley, quite often this season, when things aren't going their way, they still stick to that one style of play, which is you know pressing, try and get a long ball over the top, or you know try and cause some sort of panic in the back line of the opposition. And if that doesn't work, they haven't really got many alternatives. The one chance that they did create came from down the left-hand side, didn't it? And mm -hmm. that was, you know, playing a bit, a bit different. And I think Barnsley have got to play a bit different in the second leg. Because otherwise, as we've seen here, if Cabango and Gurhi have another game like they did here, then Barnsley just won't have a sniff all match. And... Um, Valerie and Ishmael knows very much that he has got to try and find some sort of way to get at least one goal at the Liberty Stadium in the second leg. That's easier said than done because Swansea were absolutely fantastic defensively here. Justin, let's have a break. After that, we'll talk about the news in the championship from the past week. 
I tell you what, there's nothing I love more than a classic football shirt. I've got loads of them. A Juventus shirt, Marseille shirt, even an Antalya Sport shirt. One of the reasons I've got so many is because I can get them for a great price from ClassicFootballShirts.co.uk. They've got shirts for teams from all over the globe, and that of course includes championship clubs. So if you wanted a classic Wednesday shirt, Reading shirt or Barnsley shirt, whoever you support, they'll have something for your club. It's not just shirts either, they've also got track suits, baseball caps, socks, so much stuff. Have a look for yourself. Go to ClassicFootballShirts.co.uk right now. Welcome back to the Second Tier Podcast, and it's time for this. Yes, it's time for the news, and we'll start off with this. Fulham and West Brom have been relegated back into the Championship after just one season in the Premier League. Justin Obviously, we don't keep up with the Premier League as much, those top-tier idiots. But now that they're back in the Championship, um, based on what you've been hearing from Premier League pundits, what have you made of Fulham and West Brom in the Premier League this season? Oh, Premier League pundits only talk about the top six. I've not heard anything from them. (laughs) But yeah, I think West Brom have, have lacked... Um, a bit of a, a killer threat going forwards, and they've 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 been really poor. They were riding very close to Sheffield United's points records um, for a while until until Sam Allardyce, big Sam, um, got got going with the team. But it was it was too late for them. But yeah, I think defensively they they've been very suspect as well. And then Fulham, they've relied a lot on loan players. It clicked very late in the season for a short spell, and that's about it. They they've 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 been a team who, like last season, they've had to change up. Tactically, went a bit more functional. Four-two-three-one did the same this season, and, it, and it, they only showed it in spells. And again, they've had to rely on a lot on loan players. So I don't know what they're going to look like next season. I think West Brom never really got going, did they? They they improved under Allardyce, <coughs> but it, obviously, without goes without saying that it just wasn't enough. And then Fulham, in some ways, have impressed me more in the Premier League this season than they did in the Championship Mm. last season. Um, They were playing the football that I thought they should have played in the Championship, where it was quite direct, not, you know, long ball, but it was more fast-flowing and attacking than it was in the Championship. And I I feel like if they played like that in the Championship, then they would have got the most out of the players that they had at their disposal. Obviously, they got promoted in the end anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, But I think they would have probably gone up automatically had they played like that. Now that they're back in the Championship, I will put this out there very early, Justin, but I fear if Sam Allardyce is in charge of West Brom next season and they manage to keep hold of the vast majority of their players then I do fear West Brom could be one hell of a team in the championship next season because they have got some very very good players to have at championship level we know we all know about Matthias Pereira and uh, Grady Dean Garner they're very good players at this level and when you add into the mix that Sam Allardyce is such an experienced head uh, such a great organizer of defenses then West Brom look like one hell of a unit for next season. The issue with Fulham is that they, as you say, have had quite a few players on loan this season who probably won't be in the Championship next season. They've got a bit of a rebuilding job, but again, they've also got players 
who at championship level will be very handy. But I look at West Brom and think, wow, they could be a good, good side next season. You're right, on paper. Very easy to, to make these assumptions on paper, but Sam Allardyce had the same scenario with West Ham um, in, was it 2013? It's a long time ago. Where, yeah, it was a long time ago, but he's not changed, has he? Um <laughs> so yeah, they, I mean, the crop of players they had there was ridiculous for for a championship side, and it's the same with West Brom. They got a very good crop of players coming down, and they choked it, and they had to go up through the playoffs. So I don't think it's that cut and dry that they they will do well. And I think Pereira, I think Premier League clubs will or top top tier clubs will sniff around Pereira because he shouldn't be playing in the championship again. It's no disrespect to the championship, but he's got so much ability. He needs to be playing at a top level. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see who they do keep keep hold of. Of course, there's a long old summer ahead. There is plenty that could happen in that time. Many players who could be brought in for other teams in the championship as well. But at this at this stage right now, I do look at West Brom and go, well, OK. Um, let's move on, Justin. Derby faced the possibility. This is the Derby section of the of the news <laughs> section. Um, Derby faced the possibility of being deducted points after the EFL won its appeal over the club's breaching of financial fair play rules. The EFL is pushing for any sanctions against Derby to be determined as soon as possible after finding the club in breach of profit and sustainability regulations. Um, Justin, where do we start with this? Well, let's start with one of the key takeouts of this story is the fact that Stephen Pearce, the CEO of the club, um, uses transfer market the well-known website transfer market to value his players um, which is the level of incompetence you've come to find at a club who is making over 30 million pound losses every year well I think that's definitely one way of putting it talking about the actual punishments that Derby should face though the EFL from what reports are saying have been trying to get this you know implicated this season um, it doesn't look like that will happen. I'd be very surprised if it does happen at this point. Um, I've got to say, I am quite disappointed that it is possibly going to be implicated next season because I think for all parties, it would just be best if Derby were relegated from the Championship to League One as soon as possible. And I'll explain why. I'm, I'm counting even Derby fans in this equation. If you're a Derby fan, for me personally, I've got Derby down as relegation favourites for next season already um, unless there is some serious takeover in the season and everything changes but I see Derby as favourites to go down next season if you add in the points deduction into that mix as well then it seems all but confirmed and as a Derby fan you don't want to go the whole season knowing that you're going down to League One so I think from a Derby perspective if you were a Derby fan you'd want to be you know, in League One next season just get it that season out the way and just get into League One and start winning games again and just start this whole rebuilding process. The EFL, they get to show a sign of strength and, you know, this puts fear into other teams in the future for breaking any other rules that this could potentially happen to you again. Other clubs in the Championship, surprisingly, Derby aren't the most popular clubs, (laughs) most popular of clubs in the Championship. So this is, you know favouring them as well it just seems to make sense for all parties just relegate Derby to League One as soon as possible and then we don't have to have a whole mess next season where one of the relegation spots is pretty much filled before the season's even begun 
you are right. I think it's one of them scenarios where just it's just like just cut us loose. Just yeah. do it. Just do it. Just just cut us loose. Don't care it just anymore. Ma- it just makes so much sense because otherwise. It's just a spare place in the championship next season. Um, let's move on, Justin, because there's a few Derby bits in the news this week. Eric Alonso's proposed takeover of Derby is off. It's after growing concerns from within the club that he didn't actually have the funds to complete the deal. Justin, what are your thoughts on this? And be careful what you can say. OK, well... I think was it last week or the week before where I said that I have more money than Eric Alonso and I have credit card debt. Yes, I'm you did. Um, pretty I'm just, spot I'm on just there. Wary. I'm just wary that that not can't necessarily be proved. Um, but it does seem like Eric Alonso isn't 100% truthful. Okay, we we all knew this would be the case. I think when you come out. A day after saying you're not going to say anything about the takeover and say that you're going to deliver Champions League football, that's a red flag. Just red flag after red flag after red flag. You know, he's he's talked, he's, he's spoken to Talksport and multiple journalists since since that. And um, yeah, there's been a lot of red flags. Um, there's been a lot of reports. The Athletic did a really good deep dive into Eric Alonso. There's a lot of links to some alleged links to some shady people. Um, the son of an Indonesian dictator is is one that was that was mentioned in the article. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised. And obviously, the uh, the house TikTok was a joke. That's something that you do when you're 15 when you're trying to impress a, uh, another party, aren't you? Is that's just insane. Well, the, what Justin's referring to there for anyone who hasn't seen it, Alonso has been accused of taking a video from TikTok of a very fancy house. He posted a tweet saying good morning with a video of this house, which was later found to be very similar to a video on TikTok. I say very similar. It's the same video. (laughs) Let's be honest. I don't think anyone Mm -hmm. can debate that. So that was one of the other red flags. And this came after he was told by the EFL to show that he's actually got the money to, you know, finish this takeover. More Derby news. Alonso's takeover being off has opened the door for a takeover from an American group. But it's also been revealed by the Daily Mail that the club is in £60 million of debt, which is putting off potential buyers. And what has also been kind of reported over the past week or so, Justin, is that Derby may very well have to go to administration just to kind of wipe out this debt because if you're you know a potential investor you're not going to want to invest in a club where you're already starting on minus 60 million pounds are you i'm not a i'm not a suave businessman as i said a while ago the the best investment i've made recently is um, a sticker book so i'm not i'm not one to rely on in terms of business facts but 60 million pounds worth of debt is a lot a lot of that is to msd the the loan group the football loan group um they've lent a lot a lot of money to a lot of football clubs um and they want their their money back with interest as all lenders do and mel morris hasn't paid any bills for the last year and a half i don't think because he's relied on these loans um and that's obviously stacked up the the debt at the club as as an investor you don't want to walk into a club who've only got 14 senior players contracted ne- next season. So your your immediate assets to sell, to, to raise money, just isn't there. There are a lot of young players, but they haven't really increased in value over the last year because they've been so poor. 
so yeah, Derby at the moment is just—it's looking like a, 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 a something you don't want to invest in. Simply, simply put, it's like a, a car. It's like a car in a, in, a, in a newspaper ad that's up for three thousand pounds that is only worth five hundred pounds. It's just you go nowhere near it, do you? Well, I wouldn't be spending any money at Derby County right now if I was a very wealthy man, which I'm not. Um, but I think administration from these reports alone seems almost inevitable. And of course, when you go into administration, that a points deduction is always inevitable when that happens. So it seems like Derby are going to be in a bit of a pickle next season, whatever the case. And um, kind of following on from what you were saying, um, the other reports are that if Derby are going to sell the club, then it may be for as little as one pound because no one in their right mind is going to, you know, pay millions of pounds to take this club off Mel Morris's hands. It just wouldn't make sense. And it ultimately comes down to a football club who have spent a lot of money to try and get into the Premier League and it's not worked. I don't think Derby are the first club to be in that position and I don't think they'll be the last club to do it but they're definitely one of the most extreme examples of that being the case. Final bit of Derby news according to the Guardian Derby have been forced to pay former defender Richard Keogh 2.3 million pounds in compensation. It comes after he was sacked by the club following that car crash. Now let's promise to never talk about Derby County ever again. At Birmingham their CEO, Dong Ren, has resigned. It comes after a series of protests about how he was running the club. I think this is just good news for all parties, isn't it? Dong Ren, not the most popular person in the city of Birmingham, maybe from the Aston Villa side of things. Um, he wasn't a very popular man at Birmingham. They, the club have drastically declined in the time that he's been there. And from us as a neutral, we want to see Birmingham do well, don't we? So him getting out of the club just makes complete and utter sense. They're, they're a club that have good resources available. They're also a club that have a very good academy. Um, combining those two, you automatically assume it's it's got to be at least a top 10 team um, who compete to get into the playoffs every other season or every season. Um, but it's just not been the case because recruitment has been terrible. They've spent so much money on so much crap and that's that's ultimately held the club back it's why they've a bit like derby have had financial difficulties with the efl and yeah um the running of the club um as has held the the progress of the club back and they're probably behind a lot of clubs by a couple of years but making this decision now and putting a a proper football man in place who who knows how to run a football club maybe a sporting director that sort of model i think works for, for clubs like Birmingham City who have foreign ownership um, you can argue the appointment of the next CEO or the person the next person who's running the club is more important than the appointment of the next manager for, for Birmingham City because we've seen how badly run they've been over the last couple of years yeah they've definitely been badly run and you're quite right in saying that who they're getting next is going to be absolutely crucial because they have still got the same ownership they of you know sat in a foreign country just kind of letting someone else get on with the job and it's only until now that they've realized okay this isn't going very well um so who they're getting next is going to be very interesting you'd hope it's someone who has got more of a footballing mind than dong ren who by many accounts isn't a great footballing mind um so who they're getting is going to be absolutely crucial um 
It's very rare for new managers to be this far down in our running order, Justin, in the news. But here we are. Frankie McAvoy has been appointed the new head coach at Preston after a spell as caretaker boss. Good news because he has done a fantastic job since being given the temporary role, hasn't he? Yeah, he's, he's done really well. And um, I know we can say that, you know, who's a caretaker manager is always going to get the best out of them. But when we look at the games individually, um, they were they were superb they, they they had game plans in those games. It, it was really impressive management, and it showed a different side of of Preston. Um, you know, quite tactical, quite um, quite smart in 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 how they played, and because they adapted to the opposition. Um, other than Brentford, that that final defeat to Brentford, it went very way very very well for 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 McAvoy Preston. So I'm not surprised. Obviously, it's just a caveat that caretaker managers always have this bounce. So he's just got to curb that. Uh, into next season and get a, get off to a good start and hopefully it can deliver some consistency for Preston which they lacked this season. Transfer news, Bristol City have pretty much released half their squad. Hakeem Abdelakun, Nathan Baker, Famara Jeju, Jack Hunt, <coughs> Henry Lansbury, Adrian Mariapa, Jamie Patterson, Tommy Rowe, Liam Walsh and Marley Watkins. I'd say pretty much every single one of those players would be able to do a job in a championship squad. The two who really caught my eye though, Justin, were Patterson and Walsh, both for different reasons. Patterson was absolutely fantastic at the start of last season before he had an injury, which meant he barely played for the rest of the season for Bristol City. And Liam Walsh is a really interesting one because he was someone we were expecting to have a breakout season at Bristol City. He had a fantastic season at Coventry last season, or the season before when they got promoted. And is still a fairly young lad. And I really do think there'll be some clubs sniffing around him and he could go on to great things with another side. So that's why it really surprised me that Bristol City have let him go. Yeah, there was the one that took me back was, was Liam Walsh. Um, he's a player who um, still has a lot of potential, mainly because he's not played very often. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought he'd have a big season this season. He's had injuries. Um, and again, I thought I thought um, Bristol City would give him another year at least, just to try and get get over that. But perhaps perhaps it was it was Lee Morsh leading the way to to leave, because players like him, Patterson, they're going to have a long list of clubs looking at them and, and bringing them in, especially on a free transfer. There's a lot of value in Liam Walsh, who's 23, has potential to live up to and can still do a job at this level, or, or will do a job at this level, I should say. Yeah, I, I think the list of clubs who will be, or who at least should be, having a look at him will be endless. Um, the following players are also leaving their clubs this summer. I've just picked out a few interesting ones because loads of clubs have been, you know, giving out their retained list over the past few days. Junior Hoyles at Cardiff, Christoph Schindler and Alex Pritchard at Huddersfield, Sean Williams at Millwall, Max Biemu at Coventry, Sam Bordock and Sonny Aluko at Reading, Corey Evans, Charlie Mulgrew, Lewis Holtby and Amari Bell at Blackburn. Dan Crowley and John Terrell at Birmingham, Darius Charles and Ryan Ilshop at Wickham, and Dave Nugent at Preston. Justin, anyone there who you think could be a very interesting signing for a relatively high up championship club next season? You have to go through the list again because there's so many names. I'm not going through um, the list again. I, I, I honestly cannot remember any of the names that you listed. Um, nice to perhaps pay attention. Well, uh, Junior Hoylet. Um, Junior Hoylet will probably end up at Borough under Warnock. Schindler has had his injury problems, but he's a good defender. Um, so he'd be worth a year year contract. And even Alex Pritchard, who hasn't shown any potential that he 
but he's, he's got nowhere near his um, level of ability that he can produce since that 2014-15 season at Brentford. So maybe he can as well. I, I love how you've just named the first three. It's very clear yeah. at what point you switched off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in fairness, I think Julia Hoyler is going to Middlesbrough from according to many reports. An interesting one, Omar Richards has been offered a new deal at Reading. Obviously, we're assuming that deal to Bayern Munich was all done and dusted, but not necessarily according to Reading's official uh, statement about the retain list, so that's one to keep an eye on. Elsewhere, Jordi Device has joined QPR on a permanent deal from Hull. He's been on loan since January. One lone player down that QPR need to sign. And finally, two retirees. Paul Gallagher has announced his retirement from football. He's taking up a role as first-team coach at Preston. 441 championship appearances for Leicester, Stoke, Plymouth and Preston. A true championship legend and another true championship legend has also hung up his boots. Yobi Makinoff, 351 championship appearances for Palace, Watford and of course Reading. Two fantastic pros, Justin. They were. They were great players. Paul Gallagher's one I enjoyed a lot, mainly because of his ability to take a penalty. Um, and also his... his, his, his dead ball striking is just clean and Joby Makinov obviously he's been out of the championship for a while now but back in the, I say back in the day 10 years ago um he was a he was a really good player especially at Reading um yeah good 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 players who were going to become coaches now which is good yeah well Makinov's been in charge of Leighton Orient has as interim has. manager um mm. so interesting to see how they both progress as coaches. Justin, let's finish off with a Craig Bryson pub quiz. This is the part of the show where Justin is going to give me six clues about a championship legend. They've made at least 200 championship appearances. All I've got to do is try and guess who it is. Justin, can I have the first clue, please? I made 280 appearances, scoring 50 goals. That sounds like a midfielder. Um, I'm going to go Craig Bryson. No, it is not Craig Bryson. <laughs> one day, one of us is going to have the courage to actually go Craig Bryson. <laughs> I started my career at Aston Villa before moving on to Chesterfield. Ooh. Um, I don't think he played for Chesterfield, but the only person who's come to mind is Barry Bannon. <laughs> no. No, it's not Barry Bannon. Barry Bannon scoring 50 goals. Take penalties, don't he? Not 50. Right, fair enough. I've also made 35 appearances for Northern Ireland, scoring four in the process. Steve Davis. Don't think he's played at championship level. Okay. <laughs> I rejected Barnsley to move to Sheffield United. Am I right in saying he's a midfielder? Are you going to give me that? No, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm fair enough. Um, how many clues have I got left? You've got two clues left. I'm willing to move on to the next one. I was sent off in the playoff final against Burnley while playing for Sheffield United. Right, so this is quite some time ago that he actually played for Sheffield United. Oh um, dear. You know what, Justin, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. These early starts, they get the better of you, don't they? They really do. Last one, please. Last clue. I am best known for my spell at Derby before moving controversially over to Nottingham Forest before my career wound down. Right, okay, I know who it is. Mm -hmm. It's the man, the myth, the legend. Jamie Ward, isn't it? It absolutely is. I 
completely forgot he played for Northern Ireland, which was <laughs> yeah. the thing I was focusing so much in on my head because he is the most brummy bloke I have ever heard in my life. So mm-hmm. that's why I was really struggling to get that one. But good question, Justin. Fantastic question. Well, thanks. I, I tried really hard. So you should. (laughs) Right. Well, this has been the Second Tier Podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, Final bit of updates on our next episode, because our schedule is kind of all over the place at the moment. Um, Next Saturday, we'll be live streaming the two championship playoff semi-finals. So make sure you join us then. That'll be on our Twitter and YouTube channels. Um, so you can have a little watch along while we sit down and drink in all the drama of the second legs of the playoffs. Then our next episode will be on Sunday where we react to the second legs and also look ahead to the playoff final next Wednesday. Is the second tier awards where we'll be giving out our player of the season, manager of the season, team of the season, all of the of the seasons will be determined in the second tier awards next Wednesday. I cannot wait. It's one of my favourite shows of the whole year. And we will also be live streaming, of course, the playoff final the Saturday after next. So make sure you join us then for all of that. You have got a lot of us to deal with over (laughs) the next couple of weeks. But that is why we're here, because it is the playoffs, damn it, and it's our Christmas, and we look forward to you joining us at our Christmas dinner table. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. We'll be back on Saturday for the live stream and then back on Sunday for our next episode. I've been Ryan Dilks. I've been Justin Peach. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 